you have a Bible, open it to 1 Samuel chapter 23, where we're going to be this morning. Um, I was on an airplane um, a little while ago, and the pilot came over the loudspeaker at one point and said this, and I could do this pretty well because I have a headset. Watch, he goes, he goes uh, yes, see, that's how they talk, right? Uh, hey, everyone, we're going to, I uh, just want to let you know that there's going to, I've got to get it closer. just want to let you guys know there's going to be, uh, we're going to have some turbulence up ahead. Uh, the air is a little bit choppy, and it looks like we're going to um, hit some rough air, so um, go ahead and take your seat. We've turned the fast and seatbelt sign back on. We're going to suspend drink service in the cabin, and uh, just so we can get through this rough air and hope to get you on to your destination as smooth as possible. Thanks so much. That's what the guy says to us, and then we begin to hit some serious turbulence. And turbulence on a plane, man, I'm not afraid of flying, no matter what my wife might tell you, um, but there is a point when I just like stop and have to have like a healthy respect for the fact that we're hurtling through the air at like 600 miles an hour. But um, there's nothing like plane turbulence where basically it's just the plane just dropping and jumping up, uh, up and down, up and down. It feels like uh, everything is, every bolt in this thing is loose the way it sounds, right? It's like the entire thing is now rattling. That doesn't sound good. It feels like this whole plane is made of plastic. And yet, there is a complete difference between when someone comes on a loudspeaker and says, just want to let you know there's going to be some turbulence up ahead, and when they don't. Because all the really bad stuff that happens, you don't see coming, right? And you're like, I don't know, you've run into a flock of birds or something, and that's what the turbulence is. But when they say ahead of time, there's going to be some rough air, there's going to be some turbulence, even if you're afraid of flying, even if you don't like that stuff, you can at least go, we knew this was coming, this is a normal thing, he seems pretty calm, right? And then the fear hopefully dissipates more quickly. This is exactly what we talked about last week. And it's something that God does with us all the time. He says, in the Bible, he says, when the fiery trials of life come upon you, he says, do not be surprised as though you don't know what's happening to you, right? He says, don't know, know that it's coming. Know that trial and suffering are coming. No matter who you are or what you're doing in life, no matter how good you think things are, how great you think you are, how on track you think things are, how good you think I am, God talking here, know that trials are coming, there's going to be some rough air up ahead, and then navigate it accordingly. It makes all the difference if you know that versus if you don't. And yet, for many of us who have heard that from God, we still get caught very off guard by the trials when they come. Instead, what he says is, he says, don't focus on the problem, don't focus on the cause of the thing even, and think that you're here on this planet to bring an end to this trial and this suffering and nothing else, to do everything you can to get back to life being normal as soon as humanly possible. No, he says, instead, ask the question, what is God doing to shape me in this right now? Because that is why a loving father would even allow me to go through something like this, is because of his desire to shape me through it. Now, this isn't like some Tony Robbins power of positive thinking spin, where it's like, just don't focus on the negative, focus on the problem, focus on, or don't don't focus on the problem, focus on the solution, right? Because 
the Bible tells us, no, it's not even about focusing on the solution, fixing the problem. Don't think that that's your primary job in life is to fix the problem because focusing on or the solution of that thing is focusing on the thing still. You're still spending all your time thinking about how to get this to be over so that I don't have to feel the pain I'm feeling anymore. And then you go, well, then that just sounds like apathy. That sounds like we're not even supposed to care about what's going on. No, because if you don't care at all about what's going on or anything, then how can you possibly be shaped by God through the thing that is going on? We're called to be in this world, not of it, to live as sojourners in a place that's not our home. We're called to be people who experience the loss and the pain who navigate through that, asking what God's doing in our lives, and in doing so, there's going to be something about the way that we live and the way that we act that will cause people to literally look at us and say, why on earth can you be so hopeful, not, not oblivious, not ignorant, but hopeful in a time such as this? And it is at that point that we give a defense for the hope that lies within us. This is what we talked about last week, and the reason we talked about this is because David, the main character in our story, has gone from being the anointed next king of God, the one who slays the giant, the one who has everything possible good going for him in the future of his life, has now on the run, homeless, living in a cave with a whole bunch of losers, and is for fear, living for fear of death constantly. This is where David has found himself. And yet, David continually doesn't focus on Saul, the clear source of the problem, because he knows that there is someone bigger, God, who is allowing this to happen for a reason. And what we had talked about last week was that the reason God's allowing it to happen is so that David will become not Saul part two, but instead become a good king. And in order for him to be refined, to be a good king, he would have to suffer. The truth is that God loves us and he allows us to suffer in order to shape us, to refine us, because he knows that without those things that we will turn out like these people we read about that we don't want to turn out like. That's where we are this week at the beginning of chapter 23. David is hiding in a cave with hundreds of men who have absolutely nothing going for them have ruined their own lives and prospects, have found their way to him. He hasn't asked to lead them, but he is. And as he's hiding in this cave, David, of course, is not even still focused just on self-preservation. How do I keep myself safe? How do I keep myself alive? Because we read this in verse 1 of chapter 23. We read, now they told David the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. So stop right there for a second. So David's in the cave, everything's going well, these guys are in there with him, and he's like, Here's word of an attack from the Philistines that's happening to Keilah, which is just three miles south of them, very close. It's because they're so close that they've heard about it. And because David is somebody who takes these things differently than Saul or anyone else, he doesn't see it as the Israelites in this random town are being attacked. He sees it as God is being attacked by these Philistines who believe that they're still greater than him and his people. Now, the threshing floor is a place where they hold all the grain. This is the harvest time. And the people would go throughout the fields, gather all the grain, which is the absolute most important part of their diet, 
and economy, really, and they would bring it into the threshing floor and they would beat up the grain. They would run over it with wheels and animals' feet. They would hit it with stuff. They'd probably hit each other with it, for all I know. And then they would separate out the, the grain, the good part, from the chaff. And then at night, these threshing floors were up on hilltops where the wind would pick up at night. They would throw it up in the air with pitchforks and the wind would blow it away, the chaff, the, the, the light part, and it would leave the good grain left. So if you were somebody who wanted all of that without any of the work, it's simple. You just wait till they're done. Then you ride out at night and you attack people and you take the wheat that's in the threshing floor. It's just laying out there. Well, for this reason, the people that did this had to protect it. They had to guard it. So they would sleep out on the threshing floors with their families. If you want a visual, think of the RV parked by the fireworks stand at night, right? That's basically what they're doing. And they've got to protect the goods. And so people would stay there. But the Philistines were a great nation, a great people. And they took their animals and they took their wagons and they rode into this town. And they began to kill people and they began to take their wheat. David hears about this and he takes this as an affront to God. And so he asks God, should I go and should I fight for these people? Should I defend these people? David is acting like a king, even though he doesn't have the title of the king. Meanwhile, the king himself is too concerned about finding this guy David that he's mad at to even bother with this. So David asks God this question and God says to him, go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. When we read this, we read an account of someone asking God something and God answering them. And it happens so much in the Bible that you don't even think about what just happened here. That David just asked God a question and God answered him. As I've been reading the Bible with my kids, they, they frequently are asking me, like, so how does this work? When I talk to God or I ask him things, he doesn't answer me back, but this is what the Bible says that happens. And their first thought always was, what am I doing wrong? How am I doing this wrong? My son was telling me about his friend. He, he told him um, that um, he, was, uh, he was talking to God. And he said, God, if you're there, give me a superpower. And he, he like tried really, really hard. And he prayed this really hard. And he didn't get it. And he was like, so I didn't get it. I'm doing something wrong. I don't know. That was pretty much the extent of their conversation about it too. It was just like, all right, well, I'll ask my dad. He's kind of an expert on this stuff. I mean, we start out very simply going, why is it not the way it looks in the Bible, right? When I talk to God, when I cry out to God, he doesn't actually talk back to me audibly. And then I read these things in the Bible and I go, is it possible that God even speaks in that way? That God speaks to us today, that God would ever speak to me, that I would ever know. And many will look back on years of their life as a Christian and go, you know what? I didn't hear God all those times. I really just was going off of the things other people said about the times they heard God or things like that. So we ask this question, does God still speak? Would God still speak? Can God still speak to us today? Because I don't feel like that's my experience to hear his voice in the way that David does. And uh, the easy answer is God does. He is still speaking and he speaks to those who are willing to listen. We read on, but David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. 
And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. God speaks to him clearly, and David even goes back to God and asks him again because everybody's like, why would we leave this cave? I don't know if you know this, but it will probably draw some attention from the guy we're trying to avoid. And I don't think we're ready to take him on yet. And so he inquires of God again, and God says to him, go, and in fact, if you go, you will be successful, and I'll deliver them into your hand. God is still speaking today to those who will listen. The question is, where is he speaking, and am I listening? One of the biggest misunderstandings about the way God speaks to people in the Bible is that he's speaking directly to people in a way that we would expect him to today, and we don't experience the authors in the Bible um, are saying these things like David said and God said to him and David said and God said to him. But the reality is that the overwhelming majority of the time that God communicates to people in the Bible, even people like David, God's communicating through someone else. He's communicating through a mediator. Uh, there, was, there, was, there was these people early on who had these conversations with God, you know. Then you have like Moses who like, it says, was almost face to face with God. And then you get Joshua who, who talks to God too. But then after him, God instills these, or installs these judges. And you have these priests as well that come along at that time. And from that point on, as God's nation is getting bigger, the people are growing in number, and the activity is getting more widespread, God develops this system and says, you're going to speak to me and you're going to hear from me through these other people. And that becomes the totally normal way of doing things. And so I, I think it's safe to say that God could probably hear anybody who's talking to him, who's crying out to him. But who would God speak to? How would God speak to a person? It would be incredibly unusual for God to actually do what he does with Paul on the road to Damascus, where he actually comes and just speaks directly to a person. In fact, because of this, the authors of the Bible are presuming that we know this. They're presuming that we know here that David has actually got this priest that God has brought to him. If you remember, Saul, a couple chapters ago, killed an entire line of priests, everybody that lived in their town, and the son escapes and gets away. And in that horrible tragedy of what happens, even there, God is in control because he uses it to bring a priest to David who has this ephod we read about. And this ephod is what he uses to kind of like have the ability to really communicate with God as one who's anointed and should do that job. And God is very consistent. And so because this priest comes to David, this is the person that David's talking through. So David is asking this priest, like, and asking God through the priest, and the priest is speaking back to David. And the authors of the Bible, this is such a normal accepted part of it that they don't even, they don't even describe it that way. They just say David spoke and God spoke to him. Because the presumption is that we would know that all the time when people are speaking to God, they're speaking through a mediator. It's no different than when the disciples are with Jesus, where they have Jesus to speak to them on God's behalf. Um, and when you read about the, in the epistles of the early church, you read it is, it is not at all a commonplace occurrence for somebody to say, God told me this thing. Instead, people speak to God and hear from God through mediators. And so in the very same way that God was speaking then, God is speaking now. In fact, the biggest mediator that God uses is his word, the Bible. The clearest 
best way that we hear God is in his word that he's given us. And in that way, we have even more than somebody would have had back in the time of Moses, when revelation had been so limited at that point. But we don't like the mediator. No one wants to speak through a mediator. Nobody wants to be able to like be limited in, in, in the information that they get and who gets it and how it's presented to them. We want God to speak to us outside of the Bible. We go, come on, he can do that, right? Or we want the message that he gives us to be so incredibly personal to us in our situation that it shows that it's only for us alone. The other big way that God speaks through a mediator is through a priest, through a prophet, through a person who stands there speaking from the truth of God's word, speaking from the truth of what has already been revealed about God, and when that authority is able to say, this is what God says. The authority that I have to be able to speak on God's behalf only comes from my ability to speak from God's word. I don't get up here and I don't say, here's the new thing that God told me today. Here's the brand new thing that God told me yesterday that you all have to know that's totally different from what's in his word. No, the the authority that I have comes not just from being a pastor, but also really standing on God's word. That as a church that we stand on God's word, that anything at all that comes across that if it is not consistent with God's word, then we don't take it as being from God. That is the biggest way that we know that what we're hearing is from God and not from something else. That's why you read in the New Testament talking even about this idea of like testing spirits, the idea that like, okay, fine, if there's a word, if there's something that's spoken and you're not sure about it, then hold it up against scripture and say, is it consistent? And if it's not, then know that it's not from God. God is still speaking to those who are willing to listen. The challenge is listening, and the challenge is hearing God through the means by which he speaks to us. The biggest reasons why people didn't and still don't think that they're hearing from God is, number one, they weren't willing to listen. They're confidence and assurance and pride, their predetermined ideas and way they wanted things to be, their ideologies, all the things that get in the way of what we read about in 1 Peter when it says to be sober-minded, to be like clear thinking, all of those things would get in the way and they would cause people to just not be listening. If you've ever been in a conversation with somebody who you know is not listening, only wants to be heard, you know what that looks like. Probably never done it yourself, though. People didn't hear God, and they don't hear God often because they're just not willing to listen. They're not genuinely interested in what it is that God has to say. The other reason why people didn't hear God or they don't hear God is because God doesn't change. And as things change in the world around us, we continue to be convinced in our own sort of view of things that like, no, 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 I get what you said there, but it's different now, right? Times are different, life is different, things are different, the stakes are higher, things are crazier. And so obviously, God, like it's not exactly what it was then, and God is an unchanging God. The thing that drove the disciples crazy about Jesus was how consistent he was. He didn't change what he was saying. Even when the circumstances got really hairy and really sketchy, Jesus was like, this is still what we do. This is still what it means to follow God and to step out in faith and to trust Him. I think the biggest reason why we probably don't listen to what it is that God is saying is because we don't like 
what he's saying. And the reason that we don't like what he's saying is the way that God speaks to us. We're oftentimes looking for something that's a little bit different from what God gives us. And we see it in how God speaks to David. When God speaks to David, he gives him a command. God responds to David with a command, go and attack the Philistines. And when David tells the guys and they're like, I'm not sure that you heard right. Why don't you go back and check again? He does. He goes back and he checks again. And the Lord answers him, arise and go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. God responds to David with a command. And the command, frankly, is an unreasonable one and it's a reckless one. Which is often, in fact always, what the commands of God look like. We plead to God, we ask God, God, please speak to me, give me some direction, tell me what to do. I, you know, I think if we all had the opportunity to just ask one question and we would get the answer. And you think about like, what would that question be, right? Would it be like the lotto numbers, you know? Hopefully you don't say that because just watch one of those shows on what happens to people that win the lottery or like their kids or something, you know? And they'd be like, okay, that's probably not what I would wanna ask. Most people I know, most of the time that I talk with people, I can honestly say the question that they would ask at some point in their life, if you knew you could get an answer, would just be, God, what do you want me to do right now? There are these points in our life where we go, God, what do you want me to do right now? It's especially hard when life starts to fall apart around you, like David. Things couldn't have been clearer for David when he was a shepherd and he was anointed as king and then he was called into the king's service. Now he finds himself here. And his question to God is this, what do you want me to do right now, God? I think so many of us would ask that question wanting to know what God wants for us. But when the response from God is a command, and frankly, it's not just like a lukewarm command, which we're maybe okay with, you know. It's like a boiling, red, fiery, hot command that is reckless and that is unreasonable. And what I mean by reckless and unreasonable, I don't say that like casually as even a joke or to imply that God doesn't know all things. I say it's reckless and unreasonable because the commands that God gives us are things that we cannot possibly do without him. Self-preservation goes out the window. So much of what God communicates to people in his word are commands and they're commands that are incredibly difficult to follow. God says to Abraham, when he makes a covenant with him, go, leave this land. And that command at that time is, the, is like, it's like the worst thing that you could be told to do. Because at that time, Abraham's a wealthy man, and you don't leave where you are. The place you grow up in, the place that you build your life, you don't leave that place. If you leave that place, you lose everything, or you risk losing everything. Everybody knows the most foolish thing that Abraham could possibly do would be to leave. He's a wealthy man and all of his money is tied up in land and like, and like stock. And it's a little hard to take land with you. And it's, it's a pretty big pain to take a lot of animals with you and a lot of people. But God says to Abraham to leave. That's the first thing he calls him to do. That command in and of itself, if anybody else watches it, is a reckless one to follow and it is unreasonable. There's probably a lot of advice coming from a lot of people saying, are you sure you heard him right? Are you sure that's such a good thing to do? Can you think that maybe you got it right about the whole like father of many nations, I'm going to bless people, maybe I'll give you a baby. That's something you guys have wanted for a while. Now let's not be so extreme about this. 
But God tells him to leave your land and go somewhere else. And it's a command. It's not a suggestion. Through Jesus, we get so many commands that are hard to wrap our minds around. Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Do you even, do you even know what it would be like to actually live that way? To say like, man, I got a hard enough time loving my friends and they're sometimes close enough to enemies that I'm not sure if that's worth the investment. You're telling me to love my enemies and want good for those who persecute me? There's no way that that's like possible in any kind of a realistic way. What would my life even look like to do that? But Jesus says, do that. We read to be joyful in trials which is the most unreasonable thing that you could tell someone to do when they're going through a trial. Could you even imagine if somebody came to you and their life was falling apart and they lost their, they lost their spouse and you, said, and you said, just be joyful? How cold and, and impersonal and unreasonable that would seem. And yet we're told to do it in the Bible. Jesus tells his disciples, right after things are starting to make sense again, right? He's come back. He's resurrected. Oh, okay. We're feeling good about things. We're starting to see that it wasn't what we thought it was. And then he says to them, go and make disciples of all nations. He tells them to go out and do something that from what they could see, he couldn't even do. They're like, well, but you tried to remember what you remember how it ended for you? You're Jesus. Like, okay, fine. I get it. I totally go. I'm with you now. But now you're calling us to go out to this great commission that is completely unreasonable and completely reckless. How can we possibly do this? How can my life possibly work if this happens? One of the hardest things is when Jesus simply gives the command to not be afraid. He says, be not afraid. And what he actually says as the command there is he says, be not afraid, seek ye first the kingdom of God. So when you're afraid and you're anxious and you're worried about the things in your life, the world around you falling apart, what Jesus says is he says, seek first the kingdom of God. Just worry about that. Way to not address the issue, Jesus. But that's not what's happening. God continually speaks to us with absolute clarity, with absolute direction by giving us commands, but those commands are hard things to swallow. They seem unreasonable, they seem reckless, and so we kind of avoid those things and we go, okay, God, yeah, no, 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 but, but beside all that stuff, like, what is it that you want for me? How is it that you want me to live? What do you want me to do in this situation? God gives a command. I don't think there's any more unreasonable or reckless command than simply this one word, repent. When God says to his people to repent, when God says to us, expose sin to the light of day, instead of hiding it away, let it out. That, that, that this whole, no, no, I got to work on stuff and figure stuff out. I've got to get myself to a point where I'm a little bit better and then I can finally deal with that stuff or deal with that thing. I'm not as bad as these people. Basically giving up on this project that is me that I'm trying to present to God at some point in the end. When he says repent, what he is calling people to do is he is calling us to a pretty big thing. 
And it is a thing that no reasonable, rational person, especially the way this world works, this is, does it feel like we're living in a very forgiving world? No, not really. Does it feel like we're living in a world where people have very much grace for each other? No, not really. Does it feel like whatever the thing is that you might repent of or the things that you struggle with most are probably the next wave of things that everyone's doing wrong? Probably, yeah. Why on earth would you even do that with God himself? Why would you even get on your knees and repent and say, God... I am broken and I need you for life. That command to repent seems like the most unreasonable and unconstructive thing that we can do. Of course people don't want to do it. Of course people want to preach gospel without it because of how hard that is to swallow. And that's a command that's given to us. But God gives these things and what he follows them with is what makes all the difference. And you see it with repentance more than anything else. You see it with David as God gives him a command to go and to fight the Philistines and then says something afterwards. He says, and I'll deliver them into your hand. God follows up the commands that he gives each and every time with a promise. This is what he does. This is how God speaks to us. If we're listening and we're willing to hear him, he gives a command and then he gives a promise that is true. And I say a promise that is true because it usually sounds too good to be true. And it's usually something that we struggle to believe could possibly ever be true. But God gives a command that seems unreasonable, that seems reckless, that seems foolish for us to follow, that makes us question what he even said. But he follows that command with a promise, and that promise is meant to tell us and show us, this is why you can follow this command. The reason that you can repent is because there's life on the other side of that thing. Without Jesus, there is no life on the other side of repentance. You're just like stuck in a hole going, yep, I blew it. But because of Jesus and what he's done, you can repent because of the promise that comes with him. And that sounds too good to be true. And that's a reason why many people don't repent. Because we hear about Jesus in the gospel and we go, ah, I don't really think that sounds realistic. That doesn't sound like the way things would ever really work. And so we ignore it. The commands of God that are hard for us to wrap our minds around are followed by promises. God says to Abraham, go to a new land. What he says after that is, and I will bless you. And even more importantly than that, he says, and I will go with you. If God called you to go somewhere that was hard, but he followed it up with, and I will go with you. You knew that wherever you went, that he would go with you, that promise changes everything about that command if you believe that promise. And Abraham did. He says, go and make disciples of all nations and behold, I am with you always now until the end of the age. In the same way, he says to go even though you want to stay. And go isn't just geographic. Go is like Listen, I get it, guys. You're going to want to be about yourselves from now on. You're going to want to be about like this thing that you're trying to build up here. But instead, no, go. The most uncomfortable, scary, uncertain thing that you can do, go. 
and he gives you a promise. I will be with you from now until the end of the age. He says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And what is the promise that comes after that? So that you may be sons of my Father in heaven. The reason it's so hard to love people who are hard to us is because relationships do matter to us, whether we want to admit it or not. And the last thing that we're going to do is give ourselves to people who are our enemies, to actually care about and love people who are making our life difficult and making us suffer. What God says is he says, when it comes to you and your relationships and who you are and all that fulfillment that comes with that, you're my children. I'll be your father, and that relationship is going to be good enough for you. And because that relationship's enough for you, you can just give to people. You can give freely, and it's okay if you don't get back. In fact, you'll become a person who really actually doesn't expect to get back, who can love people without receiving, and it's okay. You're not filled with bitterness and anger and jealousy and frustration. Why? Well, it's because you're my child. You have everything you need in that relationship with me. How much I would love to know that my children are so secure in the love I have for them that they don't have to worry about looking for it in places that are bad, that are wrong, that they don't have to fear that there won't be enough for them at the end of the day. In James, when we read about having joy in trials, the promise that comes after that is, then you will be perfect, lacking nothing. Why do trials hurt so much? Because they rob us of things. They take things from us. Suffering causes us to lose the things that we're attached to that we like in life. Why can we not take joy in trials? Because the things that make us happy are going away. But the promise is that you will be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. I call you to this command to take joy in trials. And the reason that I know that you can do that is because you can be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, regardless of what you lose. That's a pretty big promise. Why do we not have to be afraid? Why can we seek first the kingdom of God as though we have no other concerns in this world? He says, your father knows what you need and all of these things will be added to you. He doesn't ignore, the Bible doesn't ignore the things that we care about, the things that we want, the needs that we have. God created us these needs. But with every command that is hard for us to hear, that is easy for us to ignore and say, oh yeah, but that just applied then, or oh, that's for those people, or oh, that's too big picture, or oh, that's not really what I'm talking about, which is usually what it is, right? That's irrelevant. That's it's like trying to talk to a friend and getting advice and they tell you something and you're like, that's, that's, okay, that's not really what I'm talking about, but that's fine. That's how the commands of God hit us when we're having a hard time. And the reason that it, that happens is because we fail to see the promise that comes. We fail to see what's followed up every time, which is how God communicates. So David speaks to God. God speaks back to him. He gives him a command. And then we read about Saul. Now, at this point in 1 Samuel, it is pretty much a constant contrast between one person and another person. 
it's pretty much going to be like, don't be Saul, be David. And that's not because David is perfect. Uh, David does some pretty messed up stuff down the road. But it is because we're getting to see an example of what it looks like to be the wrong kind of follower of God and the right kind of follower of God. Someone who's after God's heart for real and someone who just has been given a title and a position and has kind of given up. So here's what we see with Saul, the contrast to David. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David and Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand, and now it was told to Saul that David had come to Keilah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. So, um, meanwhile, Saul is absolutely not listening to God because he knows that God is not actually going to speak to him anymore. And Saul's desperation to hear from God will get pretty, pretty extreme to the point of in chapter 28, he just like throws it all out the window and goes to see a medium and is like, what can you tell me? David has stopped listening to God. He stopped hearing from God and listening. But what's interesting is you get to see what it looks like when someone's not listening to God. And it's not really what you would expect. Because maybe you would think, like, well, if a person can't hear from God, then they're not going to know what to do, right? They're just going to be wandering around aimless. They're going to be, like, indecisive and not have any idea which direction to go or how they're supposed to act. But that's not actually what happens when people like this stop listening to God. Saul is operating on rumors. He's operating off of a lot of presumptions, and those things are creating something in him that's pretty common. He is more confident, it seems, than ever, even though he's not listening to God at all, which is totally not how it is, right? Like, people who don't listen are usually not very confident in themselves, their opinions, their thoughts, their ideas, their way of doing things, right? No, that's actually exactly what that looks like. Have you ever um, seen someone, like, get all of the data and then just totally miss the point of it? Just totally not see because they're just not listening? I can't think of a greater example of it and, and, and a great testament to the incredible wisdom in how people operate and the truth of that depicted than in the movie Dumb and Dumber. I mean, you'll never, you'll, you'll, you'll struggle to find a movie that can so perfectly sum up some aspects of human beings, like how dumb we are sometimes. And there's this famous scene in Dumb and Dumber where Lloyd Christmas is with the woman that he loves, uh, like talking to her, and he he asked her, what are the chances of a guy like me and a girl like you? That's not actually what he says because he's so dumb. He says, a girl like me and a guy like you ever ending up together. And he says, like, like one in a thousand. And then she says, more like one in a million. And then he says that famous line. So you're telling me there's a chance. <laughs> like... It is the greatest thing ever. <laughs> She's just told him there is one in a million chance. And he's like, 
She's telling me there's a chance. I've got a chance. Man, you have completely missed it because you are not listening at all. And this is exactly what happens when we're not listening. We become so confident in what we already know and what we already think and what's going on that we don't think there is a need to listen. And this actually happens most, I think, with people who feel that they found God in some way or the truth that God brings. We go, no, I know what God would want. In fact, I'm God's person. And so Saul is so confident as God's king that he knows what God wants that when something happens, he doesn't ask. He knows that he's not going to hear even if he does ask. I mean, he's not doing so well with the priest since he just killed an entire village of a priest and their whole family. He's given up on talking to priests and them speaking on God's behalf to him. And so he just presumes. And what does he presume? He presumes, oh, David is there. It is obvious that God has given him into our hand. David has holed himself up in a place with bars and with gates. There is no way he's getting out. Saul is so confident because he's not listening. He presumes that he knows God's will. I found that when we stop listening to God, really listening, that we begin to presume that we know. And usually that presumption is based on the idea that we're right, the idea that we already know that we're on top in some way. I mean, does it really feel like we live in a world in which people are listening to one another? Or does it feel like we live in a world in which people are more confident than ever in what they already know? Like the very first step of anything nowadays is make sure that you make it clear what you think, what you believe, what you know to be true on anything. And yeah, it's always good to get beyond that, but just worry about getting there. And so you get there and you say something in a way that doesn't in any way take into account anything but what you think. And then you lose everybody. And then it's like, well, it's going to be hard to listen now because now we're fighting. It's okay. Because at least I said what was true. And I'm confident that that's right. It is so easy for us to uh, have this kind of confidence. And so to say, you know, I don't hear from God. I don't know. I don't know what he wants. I don't know the direction that he has for me or for us. How often is that coming from a place from us of just, I'm so confident in myself. I've got it all so figured out. I'm presumed that I know exactly what's happening in every situation. I don't need any help understanding it. I just need some new information. God's like, you're not getting it at all. And we're definitely not willing to listen to him when he does speak. If you, if you have a hard time listening then you just have to stop and say, I'm going to start listening again. That's the only way to do it. It's the simplest thing in the world. It's a matter of saying, I'm going to start listening. I'm going to start listening to God. And how does God speak to us? He speaks to us the way he spoke to us before. He speaks to us through the people that he has appointed who speak on his behalf, the people who speak through the truth of his word. And we have the benefit of being able to open up the Bible and read it 
and I don't know anybody who's following what they're reading in the Bible as it's actually written and not hearing from God. But the challenge is to actually do that thing. Like I said, well, we end up reading what happens after this. It's the result of one man listening and one man not listening. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar, the priest, bring the ephod here. And then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender to me in this hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. And then David said, will the men of Keilah surrender to me and my men in the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender to you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went to wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. David has been betrayed now, even by the very people that he saved. While their king was going around chasing him, not being a king, David was being a king. He was going and fighting on behalf of the Israelites with his 400 losers. And God used that to deliver the people and then told him, the people are going to turn you in. It is hard to even begin to fathom what it must feel like to be David. To know that absolutely everyone almost everyone, you really feel that you can't trust. God brings Jonathan to him later on in this chapter, and he eventually brings Jonathan just for the purpose of encouraging David and saying, you will be king, to remind him of what God has already said. There have been times in my life where I have been so desperate for direction, and God has spoken to me, and I've almost completely missed it. There was a time I was on the phone with a friend and I was telling him about some things I was going through and he told me some things about myself that were really, really hard to hear. And they bothered me. Made me feel like he didn't care about me, didn't understand me, didn't understand what I was going through. And I opened up the Bible that day and was reading in Proverbs and this proverb about how the words of a friend how the, how, the, how the kind words of an enemy are worse than the harsh words of a friend. And I'm like, that's weird. Huh. Oh, well. No, I didn't say that. I read that and I was like, man, those words hurt. Those words were harsh, but they were from a friend. They were from someone who was speaking, um, I know, from a place of wanting God to be glorified more than me in my life. And so those words, as hard as they were to hear, are good words that bring life to me. I then went on to keep reading and was reading in a psalm because it brought me to a place of feeling pretty bad about things. And so I go to a psalm because I'm like, David's in the caves. He's pretty miserable. That's always a good place to go. Read a psalm, you know, some sad stuff in there. It'll make me feel better maybe. 
Misery loves company. We talked about last week. And so I go and I start reading a psalm and it says that David says, God is my, my refuge. He is my defense. And it was this vivid point in my life in which God got my attention, was like, I'm in this. I am speaking to you in this. As much as you want new information that says, but for you it's different because you're special, it's not, and here it is. And when he got my attention, he like the one-two punch hits me with what he needed me to know, which was, I am your refuge, I am your defense. And it was at a time when all the problems I was dealing with in life were not actually caused by an enemy like Saul or circumstances outside of my control. They were actually being caused by my absolute desperate need to be in control of my life, to be my own defense, to be my own refuge. And God speaks to me clearly in it, and he says, what this means is that if I am not your defense, you are, you are in trouble. If I'm not your defense, you are in really big trouble. So either let go and trust that I'm your defense, or keep trying to fight for yourself and see where that gets you. It was one of the most personal ways that God has spoken to me. But he spoke not in the way that I was hoping he would. This is how God speaks to us. It is incredibly personal, especially when life is hard. And rather than uh, go to find other things that will be more specific to us and what we're going through and different perspectives and different voices, instead, we listen. And the reason we listen is because we know that even though there's probably going to be some stuff in there that's hard, we know that the promise that God brings us back to every time gives more life. It gives more joy. It fulfills us more than anything else that we could seek elsewhere. Let's pray. God, it is, um, it is really hard to listen, to really listen. The more that I think about listening, the more convicted I am that I'm just a terrible listener. God, I... It's hard to listen because it means really actually being open to things outside of ourselves, being less self-absorbed, actually being teachable. God, our prayer is that you would help us to be people who can hear your voice when you speak it, who can know your voice and how different it is from the voice of the enemy, the voice of our flesh. Lord, would you help us to be people who can hear and discern your voice? And would you help us to be people who bring your voice to one another, God? Who bring your truth to one another. God, you are still speaking today. The question is not if you're speaking. The question is, are we listening, God? It's in your name that we pray. Amen.